Welcome back, and thanks for joining me again. Well, today we begin to enter the world of geometry. Thus far, we have been studying objects which we can pull and stretch and bend in the rubber sheet world of topology from curves and surfaces. Now, although geometry also studies shapes, it deals with rigid measurements of distances, angles, and volumes. We begin this lecture by defining what it means for curves and surfaces to have curvature, something that is fundamental to understanding shapes in nature. We then move to the greatest result in the study of shapes, from my perspective. It is called the Gauss-Bonnet theorem. At the end of these lectures, I can practically guarantee you will be shedding tears of joy. It shows that there is this amazing relationship between curvatures on surfaces, given by rigidity from geometry, and the rubber sheet flexibility of surfaces, given by topology. A curvature is one of the most visible and defining characteristics of the shape of an object. Remember how form and function are related in nature? Well, consider the curvature of objects in nature coming in different forms. We have curvatures of leaves and plants, such as the numerous kinds of lettuce that you can find in grocery stores alone. But why is this so? Why is lettuce curved in that way it is? Well, because the numerous creases of lettuce and even the creases in the leaves of plants allow the plants to absorb a lot of light if the creases weren't there. Curvatures of animals, such as coral from the Great Burial Reef and seashells show up everywhere. Of course, the importance of curvature of man-made objects cannot be diminished, such as contact lenses, bullet casings, telescopes, automobile design, where aerodynamic design for the wind flow is extremely important for the curvature of the object. Even looking at simple examples like this, show how drastically different some objects are between just these two vases and how the curvature of these objects are different. Much less something as complicated as this surface to see the curvature of the different points at the surface vary so drastically. Well, what we want to do is define curvature in a rigorous way from a mathematical perspective. And our motivation for defining curvature of two-dimensional surfaces begins, just like it did for topology, with understanding ideas from one-dimensional curves. In topology, we started with knots and moved on to surfaces, and we want to do the same thing here when we enter the world of geometry. How would we define the curviness, the curvature, of a circle of radius r, something that we have a good intuition for? Well, let's consider a circle of arbitrary radius. Let's call it radius r. Now, as the radius of the circle increases, as we get a bigger and bigger circle, what's happening to the curviness of the object, the curvature? Notice that the curvature starts to decrease. If you have a big circle, then the curvature is basically flattening out. As the radius increases, the curvature decreases. And similarly, as the radius of my circle decreases down to a small circle, the curvature increases intensely. Thus, we simply define the curvature k at a point on a circle to equal 1 divided by the radius, the inverse of the radius. They're inversely related, inversely proportional. So as the radius increases, the curvature decreases, and vice versa. 
But what about the curvature of a straight line? Now, we want this in our heart of hearts to have curvature zero. We want this to have no curvature at all. That instinctively makes sense. And this is indeed the case. For if a circle of, of uh, radius r, if you keep increasing the radius of the circle so that the radius becomes infinitely large, then you see that the circle starts opening up more until the radius is infinity and you end up with the line as a piece of this infinitely large circle. So we see the curvature of this line is 1 over the radius, 1 over infinity, huge number, is 0. So the curvature of this line, in fact, is 0. Our intuition thus far is correct. But what about a general curve in the plane? It doesn't have to be a perfect circle or a perfect line. How do we talk about curvature here? Well, let's take a look and see what we get. In this example, we have a generic curve, and we notice, first of all, that the curvature is not defined for an entire object, like a line or a circle, because they're so symmetric. But the curvature is defined at every point on the object. Notice for this closed curve here on the sheet of paper, at any point on this object, the curvature is drastically different. So how do we define this? Well, we associate it to something we're already comfortable with, the curvatures of circles. So we think of a curvature of a point as the best fit circle at that point. This is officially called the oscillating circle. If you know something from calculus, from derivatives, you see that this is basically measuring the second derivative at this point. So for example, if I take this curve given here, if I pick this point here, you draw the best fit circle at that point that approximates at that point the best circle you can get around it, and the curvature is 1 over the radius of the circle. Now, we generalize to define curvature of surfaces. Now that we have an idea of what curvature looks like at points on curves, what does it look like on surfaces? Well, similar to curves, we define curvature of surfaces at a point. But how do we do this? Things get far more complicated with surfaces, as you can take a look at some of these examples here, than it is with curves. Again, each point on a surface might have different curvature values. For example, a kernel of corn, something quite simple we see a lot, has a different curvature at the tip of that kernel than it is at the smooth end of the kernel. So even something as obvious as a kernel of corn, the curvature varies intensely. Now, there are several ways of generalizing from our one-dimensional method of curvature into higher dimensions. Indeed, the concept of curvature becomes powerful as we enter three dimensions and four dimensions, which we discuss in later lectures. But we will stick to two dimensions for now. Now, we focus on the most famous and important definition of curvature, the Gaussian curvature. Carl Frederick Gauss, 1777, was called the Prince of Mathematics. He is, almost without question, the greatest mathematician since antiquity, if not ever. He was the last mathematician to know every field of mathematics. In fact, due to his broad and powerful discoveries, he made it so that nobody after him could possibly understand all of the mathematics and its fields he created. You can even think of him as a mini Big Bang event in mathematics. He was so prolific and amazing, he revolutionized the fields of mathematics in numerous areas. 
He was a child prodigy who was a perfectionist. In fact, had he published all of his notes and journals, which were not yet perfect, he might have advanced mathematics 50 years beyond what it is. The definition of Gaussian curvature of a point on a surface is given as follows. Now, one way to try to get two-dimensional curvature on a surface is to use our one-dimensional intuition and knowledge that we already understand. Try to get curves on surfaces. We already know what curvature of curves look like. If I can take curves and put it on surfaces, then I might be able to use my idea about curvatures on curves to get a curvature on a surface. Let's take a look. Let's consider a sphere as our test case. Now, what do we do to get a curve on the sphere? We can feel the curvature instinctively, but what does it mean to measure it? Well, we can cut the sphere with a plane going through the center of the sphere, through the point that we want to measure the curvature of. And when we do this, when we intersect this plane with the sphere, we actually get a curve, this great circle that goes around the sphere. Now, this is a circle. We know how to measure the curvature of circles. If the sphere had radius r, then the circle has also radius r, and the curvature along this circle is 1 over r. So what did Gauss do with this instinct? Well, consider the sphere of radius r and cut the sphere to get a circle of radius r one way, and cut it also 90 degrees to what we just did to get another circle of radius r through this point that we picked to get two circles of radius r, one this way and one this way. Now multiply the two curvatures together to get the Gaussian curvature of the point on the sphere. So pick a point on the sphere, cut it one way, and you get a circle of radius r with curvature 1 over r. Cut it the other way, 90 degrees to it, to get another circle of radius r, to get curvature 1 over r. And the Gaussian curvature of the point on the sphere is 1 over r times 1 over r, which is 1 over r squared. Now what happens for a generic point on a generic surface. A sphere is too beautiful and too perfect. Well, since we're on a surface, at each point there exists a neighborhood around that point. We know this is the definition of a surface. So we have 360 degrees of freedom to travel from this point. So we have infinitely many directions in some sense. Each one gives us a curve associated to that surface. If you look at my surface, I can cut it this way through that point, and you get a little curve going through it. Now I can move around a little bit and cut it again, and I get another curve, and I get another curve. I have all of these possible infinitely many curves I can get. So Gauss picked a generic direction on a sphere and 90 degrees to it, and he picked these arbitrarily in some sense because a sphere is perfect. So for a generic surface, which directions out of my infinitely many do I pick? We were lucky with sphere, but what do we do for a generic surface? Well, Gauss was able to show that there are two very special directions at each point on a surface. No matter which surface you give him, there's always two special directions to pick. These directions are the extrema in terms of curvature. And Gauss was able to show that these directions must always be perpendicular. It is beyond the scope of this lecture to show why. So you have to trust me on it. But each of these directions traces out a curve. So I pick the two directions Gauss tells me to cut along, one and the other has to be 90 degrees to it, the other. I look at the curves I get from those two directions. I take the curvatures of those two curves and I multiply them together. We simply take the product of the two one-dimensional curvatures to obtain this Gaussian curvature at that point. Now, let's consider some examples to see what this means in a concrete setting. 
let's take a look at the curvature of a flat sheet of paper. Here, consider a flat sheet of paper. If I cut this flat sheet of paper at a point any way I want to, I get a line. Now, if I take a 90 degrees to it and cut it again, I get another line. So the curvature of a flat sheet of paper at any point I want is the curvature of those two lines. But the curvature of those two lines are zero and zero. So the curvature at a point on a flat sheet of paper is zero times zero, which is equal to zero. Now, what about the curvature of a cylinder? Now, it turns out that the two natural extreme directions of the cylinder are what we feel to be the natural extreme directions, what we feel to be instinctive. Which is given a cylinder, you cut one along the long part of the cylinder, and the other one you cut along the circular part of the cylinder. So let's take a look. Let's take my cylinder, pick a point. Remember, curvature is not defined globally. It's defined at a particular point at a time. So let me give in a cylinder. I'm going to pick a point on the cylinder. Now I'm going to cut my cylinder this way, this vertical cut that goes this way, this horizontal cut that goes this way. This one gives me a circle. Let's say it's a circle of radius r. Right? So the curvature at this point along this circle is 1 over r. But the curvature this way gives me a line, which is 0. So if I take the curvature 1 over r and multiply it by 0, I get the Gaussian curvature at the point, which is 1 over r times 0, which is 0. So what Gauss says is that the Gaussian curvature of a sheet of paper is 0, and the Gaussian curvature of a cylinder is 0. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The Gaussian curvature of a cylinder is 0? Cylinder isn't It's not a sheet of paper. It's curved. Our instincts say something's going on. A cylinder has this curvature. Gauss. What are you doing? I know you're smart and all, but somehow you're not measuring what I think you should be measuring. Why is this happening? Well, again, we have problems with intrinsic versus extrinsic. Now, from an extrinsic perspective, looking at that cylinder and that sheet of paper, of course I can see that they're different. So my gut says that you should get different Gaussian curvatures. But Gauss was smarter than that. He didn't want to know about the extrinsic feel of the world. He wanted to know what it looked like to live on the world. And if you lived on a sheet of paper, or if you lived on a cylinder, near the world you live in, near your little region, your neighborhoods, it would look the same. Why? Because I can take my sheet of paper and roll it up and become the cylinder. The distance it takes to walk to a house on a cylinder is the same as on a sheet of paper. So if I take my sheet of paper, pick my point, and see how long it takes to walk to my friend's house, I could roll it up into a cylinder. That distance is exactly the same on the cylinder. This is what Gauss was measuring. He cared about intrinsic curvature, not extrinsic curvature. So then you ask the question, well, why does the sphere not have a curvature of zero? Remember, we can make the sheet of paper zero. We can make the cylinder zero. How come the sphere isn't zero? Well, think about it. Take a sphere made out of paper. Can you make this flat? In fact, to do this, you need to rip the sphere apart to lay it flat. And this measurement of tearing is exactly what Gaussian curvature is doing. Since the Gaussian curvature is not zero on the sphere, Gauss is saying you actually need to do some tearing to go from one to the other one. In fact, this is exactly the problem with drawing projections of the Earth on flat sheets of paper. The distance in curvature causes distortions in the maps of the world we have. Gaussian curvature senses this. Well, what about something like a saddle? What about if we have some, an object 
which looks like this, where you have curvatures going this way and a curvature going this way. Notice here that there are two directions we have of curvature. Well, let's take a look. I do the same thing I did earlier. I pick my point, let me pick the center of my saddle. I slice it one way, I get a curve. And let's pretend the radius of that osculating circle there is one over R1. I slice it another way. Let's pretend the osculating circle here is one over R2. So I need to multiply these two things to get my curvature. But notice something weird is going on, that choosing which direction I travel is very important because these two osculating circles are pulling away from each other. One circle is pointing down, but the other circle is pointing up. And thus, because of this pull, Gauss says you need to give a direction towards your curvature. Since one is pointing down, let's call it a negative direction. That's 1 over r1 negative value, and the other one is 1 over r2 positive value. That's when you multiply these two answers together, the Gaussian curvature is negative 1 over r1 times r2. Now let's take a look at the sphere again. Maybe we missed this, these orientation issues. If we take a look at the sphere, let's pretend we want to orient the down direction as negative. Let's just pick our direction, just like the orientation of a, of a knot, we can just orient this down direction of the sphere as negative. Then if I take my one slice, this direction would be negative 1 over r, and this direction would be negative 1 over r as well. So if I multiply this direction by this direction, I get negative 1 over r times negative 1 over r, which is positive 1 over r squared. So in the sphere, if I point this direction to be positive or this direction to be positive, at the end of the day, my Gaussian curvature doesn't change. The most important thing is here for this saddle point, if I point up positive or down positive, the fact that they have opposite poles is what that negative sign is about. It's not the orientation you pick. Just like knots, it doesn't matter which way you orient it. You're going to end up with the same object at the end of the day anyway. Same thing for surfaces for Gaussian curvature. Now, what can we say about positive, zero, and negative curvatures? Now that we have a sphere being positive, a flat sheet of paper or a cylinder being zero, and the saddle being negative, what does, what does that mean? They show how things bend and this extrinsic phenomena. This negativeness is an extrinsic data where the negative means you're pulling against each other and positive means you're going towards. Now, zero is flat. Positive measures, again, pulls in the same direction, and negative pulls in the opposite direction. They also show, from an intrinsic perspective, the value of land. You see, for zero curvature, in some sense, the world you can think of where we live in, the city you live in, in some sense, is flat. Now, the earth we live in has curvature, but locally, it looks flat. So let's pretend for zero curvature, an area of land is $10, right? Imagine you live in a flat plain, area of land is $10. Now, if you live in a world of positive curvature, the value is, will increase. Now, the Earth itself, although you can say it's $10 per one part, the whole Earth has a positive curvature. The value will increase because land becomes rare, which it is for the Earth. That's why property values always go up, because you're running out of space because the world is curving in on itself. Now, for negative curvature, the value will decrease. It will be less than $10 an acre. For positive curvature, it'll be more than $10, and for negative, it'll be less because there's going to be so much land around you because of the negativeness. Now, notice this is an intrinsic phenomenon. It happens because you live on the world, not the way the world itself looks.
So for example, the curvature of leaves, lettuce, and plants in general are mostly negative curvature because they want a lot of surface area. They try to pack in as much surface area as they can to absorb light. So far, we've been concerned with curvatures of surfaces at points. What happens when we want to study the entire surface as a whole? Well, let's consider the sum of the curvature of every point on the surface. Now, there are clearly infinitely many points on the sphere, so you might say, well, the sum just doesn't make any sense. You're going to get infinity as your value. But this does not necessarily have to be the case if we think about it in a different way. We are going to define the total curvature of a surface as the sum of the curvature based on the surface area. So let's consider the sphere as an example. The total surface area of the sphere in a global setting is 4 pi r squared, if the radius of the sphere is r. But the curvature at every point on the sphere is 1 over r squared. We measured this. We actually computed this. So what does this mean? It means let's compute the total curvature. Now that we have the curvature at each point and we know how much stuff we have, we have 4 pi r squared's worth of it, then we just multiply the two values. The total curvature of a sphere is 4 pi r squared's worth of material times 1 over r squared at each point. If you multiply those two values together, the r squareds cancel out, you get 4 pi's worth of total curvature. Now what I want us to notice is that the 4 pi's worth is not dependent on the radius itself. So no matter the size of the sphere, the total curvature is always 4 pi. Wow, this is amazing. You pick a small sphere, the total curvature is going to be 4 pi. Why? Because a small sphere has a lot of high curvature, but the surface area isn't that much. And a big sphere doesn't have that much curvature at all at every point, but you add it all up and it works out perfectly. This seems like a very, very nice coincidence since the sphere is a very, very nice object. But now let's look at the total curvature of a torus. Let's see what we get here. It turns out that the total curvature of a torus, if you add it up, now this is hard to compute because you do need geometry to do this. You need differential geometry to understand. But it turns out that the total curvature of the torus, if you add up all the values, is going to be zero. In other words, this curvature on the outside part of the torus, notice that it's positive, this thing shaded blue in your, in your diagram. It's positive because the pull is both facing in the same direction. You have a curve going this way and a curve going this way. The two 90 degree curves that give you the Gaussian curvature are pointing in the same direction, so it's a positive curvature, like the sphere. But the stuff inside are all looking like saddles. There's one going this way and the other pulling the opposite direction. And if you put the torus right on a flat table, you see that at the top rim and the bottom rim, the curvatures are exactly zero. They're flat. You can lie them right flat on the table. So you see the curvatures range from this positive towards a, towards a zero, towards a negative, back towards a zero, back to positive. And what happens when we add it all up? It goes away to zero. The amount of positive cancels out perfectly with the negative regardless of the size of the torus. Now, what about these other shapes? What do we get here? Look at this shape. It's a sphere with a little divot. Now, the sphere has you no know, total curvature 4 pi, but you've increased the curvature at this little tip because you pushed it up and it's really sharp now. You've increased curvature. But right around that divot, to make the divot, you had to introduce some negative curvature right, about, right around it. 
What about these other curvatures of this torus pulled this way or this knotted up triple genus torus? Welcome to the greatest theorem, from my perspective, ever discovered, Gauss-Bonnet. It claims that if we know the genus of the surface, we know its total curvature. Wait, wait, wait. The genus tells us the total curvature? But genus is a purely topological property. It's not a geometric property. The genus is this rubber sheet. The genus has nothing to do with geometry and curviness. But curvature is a purely geometric property. In particular, the theorem states that the total curvature of an orientable surface, all the ones we're looking at, uh, surface S, is basically 2 pi times the Euler characteristic of that surface. So if you know the Euler characteristic, you multiply it by 2 pi, you get the complete total curvature. So the curvature of the sphere is 2 pi times the Euler characteristic is 2, 2 pi times 2 is 4 pi, just like we got. And the Euler characteristic of this donut, of this torus, is 2 pi times the Euler characteristic is 0, which is equal to 0. But notice this is not a geometric sphere in this example. Look at this example again. This sphere is not a geometric sphere, but it's a topological one. But Gauss-Bonnet says the total curvature of any sphere, which is homeomorphic to the perfect sphere of any sphere, has to be 4 pi, which means the total curvature of this sphere with the little dimple, the little divot, is also 4 pi no matter how you deform it. Because the negativeness around this little dimple cancels out with the extra positive curvature you've introduced by making it sharper perfectly. Perfectly. That's what Gauss-Bonnet says. In fact, look at the curvature, the total curvature of a torus that looks like this. I know the total curvature is going to be zero. In other words, all the negativeness that you see here in red and all the positiveness that you see in other places cancel out perfectly. If I stretch it even more, it doesn't matter. The amount of stretching will introduce just enough negative and positive curvatures to cancel out beautifully. The left side of the Gauss-Bonnet theorem the total curvature, is purely geometric constraint, and the right side is a purely topological one. Thus, this surface of genus 3, its total curvature is 2 pi times the Euler characteristic, which is negative 4. 2 pi times negative 4 is negative 8 pi. I know its total curvature without even having to compute a thing. Geometry, the curvature at every point, and topology, this global phenomena of genus, are intrinsically related. What a gorgeous, oh, gorgeous result. Now, I want to close this lecture by considering how curvature and Gauss-Bonnet behave not on beautifully smooth surfaces, but on polyhedra. We've been looking at polyhedra motivated by the platonic solids. So let's look at polyhedra in a different way based on Gauss-Bonnet. Look at this polyhedron here. Notice that curvatures at points of the faces of the polyhedra, at any point in the face, is going to be zero because it's flat. And also curvatures along edges, any point along this edge, it's going to be zero also because if I take an edge of a polyhedron, I can just intrinsically go like this. The way my, I live on this world hasn't changed at all if I go like this or this. So the curvature is, this side is zero curvature. This could have some curvature here, but it's zero times whatever, and it's going to be zero. What does that mean? That means for polyhedra, all my curvature is concentrated at the vertices. For something like this, all the curvatures here are zero at faces. They're zero along edges, but they're all concentrated at vertices. 
So how do we calculate the Gaussian curvature at a vertex? Well, at a vertex, the curvature is 2 pi minus the total face angles at that point. Let me give you an example. What is the curvature of this point in this icosahedron? Well, the curvature of that point in the icosahedron is just cut it open and lay it flat. It's 360 degrees. It's 2 pi minus the amount of angles you have here. In other words, the total curvature is the angle left over when you lay it flat. So the total curvature of this is just this angle. Now notice what happens. This is a pretty, pretty curvy point, so you can see how much the curvature it is. But what happens if I take off one of these? Now look, now the point gets more curved, it gets curvier. And look, the angle increases. Let's do it again. Look, the curvature, it gets sharper at this point, and the angle increases. The curvature at this point is pi. Why is the curvature at this point pi? Because the angle here is 2 pi minus 180 degrees, which is pi. So this angle right here is pi, and that's the curvature. The polyhedral gauss bonnet says the following thing. The sum of curvature is 2 pi times the Euler characteristic of the polyhedra. That's exactly what it says. Now consider the examples of a cube and a tetrahedron. Here, take a look at the cube. We only need to worry about the vertices of the cube because that's where all the curvature is. The computing the, ver the curvature of that vertex right here is 2 pi minus the face angles. You have three angles meeting at that point. Each one is 90 degrees. So it's 2 pi minus 3 times pi over 2, which is simply pi over 2. The curvature at the corner of a cube is pi over 2. But how many corners does this cube have? It has eight corners. So the total curvature is 8 times pi over 2, which is 4 pi. That's exactly what we got for the sphere. The sphere was 4 pi, and this is 4 pi. And that makes sense, because this is a topological property. Locally at every point, it's geometric, but globally, globally it's a topological one. Consider this example of a tetrahedron. At every point, it's 2 pi minus, you have three of these angles meeting, three times pi over three angles. So the total, excuse me, the curvature at this point is pi. So the total curvature is four corners, four times pi, which is four pi, just like before. Let's consider a more complicated polyhedron like this torus. Look at the corner of this torus. There's these outer four corners whose curvature is two pi minus three times pi over two, because you have pi over two information there which simplifies to a total of pi over 2. And then you have these inside corners. You have eight inside ones. Those inside corners look like this. It has these three squares here, along with two more squares, a total curvature of negative pi over 2. You have pi over 2, pi over 2, pi over 2, pi over 2, pi over 2. So it's 2 pi minus 5 pi over 2. Total curvature is negative pi over 2, which makes sense, because the inside of that torus has that saddle-like feel that we have. So we see that the inside of that torus is eight vertices of negative pi over two. The outside corners of the torus are eight vertices of pi over two. You add it all up, you get zero. In fact, we can do something far more complicated with this example, which we have seen earlier, which we computed the genus for. Here I have curvature at points like this, which you get pi over two, which you can calculate. Points like here, which you get negative pi over two, which you can calculate again and other kinds of points like the inside of this one, which you get negative pi over 2 also. You add up the total curvatures of the number of these different kinds of points, you do all of the work of algebra, and you get negative 4 pi. 
if it's negative 4 pi, now I can reverse engineer it, negative 4 pi, which means my Euler characteristic must be negative 2, because negative 2 times 2 pi is negative 4 pi, which means my genus must be 2. What a beautiful thing. I can find the genus based on Gauss-Bonnet reverse engineering it. So what have we learned in this lecture? We have seen how to understand one-dimensional curvature and use it to define two-dimensional Gaussian curvature. We have seen different kinds of curvature, positive, zero, and negative, and its implications to intrinsic and extrinsic viewpoints. And we have tied in topology of surfaces to the geometry of curvature by the fabulous Gauss-Bonnet theorem. In our next lecture, we push our idea of geometry even further by coming to grips with the most famous geometric value, area. Stay tuned.